I, like many of you, wake up and go to the Word of God uh, and spend time with Him each morning. This morning, I did the same thing. But as usual, uh, like many of you, I live in the real world too, so next to my bed is a phone that's charging at night. Not that any of you charge your cell phones next to your bed, but I do. And uh, before I could get to the Word of God this morning, I turned my phone on and it started dinging with alerts. And uh, the alert was that uh, dozens of people apparently had been injured in New York City in the midst of a bombing uh, yesterday, late yesterday. And began to process through how absolutely, utterly depressing the world is. I mean, just before I even got to the Word of God, I was overwhelmed with how hopeless things seem. How frustrating that we live in a world now where the most significant things in our country involve whether athletes stand or take a knee during the national anthem, whether protests are going to happen during a game that is meaningless in the big picture of life. Uh, and yet I find out that our own Philadelphia Eagles are planning their own protest when the national anthem is played during the game tomorrow. And it's, it's like just one thing after another after another, you know. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that we're not exactly putting up the best candidates for president. Uh, it's just constant. Then I went to the Word of God this morning, and I was reminded again, like I have a thick skull or something, God beat me across the head to say, you're focusing on the wrong news. The news is that I died, I took the sins, I'm on the throne, and you have nothing to fear. And I trust in that this morning. And as we go to the Word of God today, I pray that this message, you all are so faithful to put up with me and listen to what God places on my heart. And I pray that this message this morning would be an encouragement to you as I needed encouragement this week. And God spoke to me clearly through His Word. And I pray that He encourages you as well. Because there is good news. God's news is good news. And good news of God always trumps any bad news that we think dominates our life. Here's the good news. If you would read with me John 1, verses 35 and on. The first Sunday of this series, we talked about the eternal mission of Jesus Christ, that He is the Creator God, and that He came with a plan to save the world of its sins. Then we carried on in the first chapter of John, and we came to, yet last week, the ministry of John the Baptist, which is the ministry of all of us, which is preparing people for that good news of Jesus Christ. And it brings us to today when Jesus begins his earthly ministry of calling men and women to himself. In verse 35, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they, they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah 
which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here's the good news, church. Since the beginning, God has been calling men and women, boys and girls, to himself. And he continues to do that even in this wicked world in which we live today. As we sit here today, maybe in this very room, maybe it's you, but God is calling the hearts of men and women and boys and girls, and he's saying, come follow me, come see. And people who have doubts say, surely nothing good can come of Jesus. All we have to say to them is, just come see. Listen to what he has to say, and judge for yourself. The stories are overwhelming in the, in the history of the past 2,000 years. How many people have taken that one small step of faith where they said, I'll, I'll listen. I'll go see. I have enough turmoil. I have enough sin. I have enough hate. I have enough violence. I have enough bad news in my life. I'm going to give this Jesus a try. I'm going to listen to what his truth is. And I'm telling you, that when people earnestly seek after the Lord, their lives are changed when they find Christ. It's been going on since Andrew, since Simon, since Nathaniel, and Philip, and on and on and on. Many of you have those stories to tell. I'm going to share one with you today as we start this service. Maybe you've read the book, maybe you've seen the movie Unbroken. It's the story of one of the greatest generation's greatest, a man named Louis Zamperini. Put his picture up there, Alan. This doesn't look like a World War II hero, does it? And that man is an amazing testimony to Christ. Louis, uh, as a young boy growing up in Torrance, California, all he cared about is how much alcohol he could sneak and how fast he could run away from the town cop. And he grew up in that sort of situation. And growing and running away from the town police, time and time again, his brother said, hey, Louie, why don't you make running something that you do instead of sinning? So Louie decided, all right, I'll run. So he joins the track team. Before you know it, he's beating everybody. And God favors Louie. And eventually, by the time he gets to the end of his high school career, he's competing for numbers that are so low 
in the mile and the two mile that he is competing on an international level. Before you know it, God takes Louis, Louis didn't know it at the time, but God takes Louis out of the sin and degradation of a young boy in Torrance, California, and places him in the 1936 Berlin Games before Adolf Hitler as an Olympian. Well, then World War II comes calling. The 1936 Olympics were supposed to be Louis' trial run. 1940 is when he was supposed to earn all the medals. Guess where he was in 1940? He was in a bomber flying over the South Pacific. Eventually that bomber goes down. He finds himself stranded. He survives miraculously with two other men, and they spend, to date, the longest known record period of time surviving in a lifeboat. Some crazy number. I mean, like it's well over 100 days that they survive in the South Pacific. Catching birds and eating them raw, fish, fighting off sharks. And during that time in the lifeboat, as he watched his one buddy die, he began making promises to God. Just get me out of this, Lord. I'll do this for you. If you get out of this, get me out of this, Lord. I'll give my life for you. So they're finally rescued by a Japanese patrol boat. And into prison camp, Louis goes. A couple years. The, the crazy man they called the bird, who was the head of the Japanese prison camp, found out that Louis was an Olympian. So he made him a special case of his own and proceeded to beat him mercilessly well beyond any of the other prisoners for those years that he was in captivity. His family in Torrance believed that Louis was dead. And Louis continued to fight. And he continued to make these promises to God. And then he got home after the liberation, after the Japanese prison camps were liberated and World War II came to an end, Louis goes home. And he finds out what a lot of veterans find out who have been through such a thing. That post-traumatic stress is awful, awful. And as a result, he almost loses his wife and his marriage, and he has nowhere else to turn. And by God's grace, his wife finds out that there's a man in Los Angeles preaching the gospel in a tent. She goes and she listens to him, and she... She surrenders her life to Christ. And she says, if, if I can be saved, surely my husband can be saved. And she begins to, she begins to hammer on Louis, you know, hey, turn away from the alcohol, you know, we don't have to live like this. Why don't you go hear about this Jesus? Come with me tonight. Louis wouldn't have anything to do with it. Until he was finally broken. Because God never gives up and continues to call people to himself. Listen to this. These are Louis' words, his exact words. Quote, he said, it took them, them being his family and his wife, it took them a whole week to get me down there, tent meeting. I always resented religious tent meetings since I was a youngster, but I was surprised that everything was under control inside the tent, so I sat down. Now stop a second. You know what he's saying there? Evangelism crusades were were in his mind, associated with the chaos of charismatic and Pentecostalism. And he didn't want any part of that disorder. But when he went to this crusade, he saw that there was order. I got my next surprise when they introduced the evangelist called Billy Graham. 
I'd already pictured in my mind what an evangelist looked like, but here was this tall, handsome, clean-cut, athletic type. I got my next surprise when he began to speak, and I'll never forget the scripture he read. Quote, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and there is not a righteous man that doeth good and sinneth not. Well, I knew I was a sinner, but I didn't like the idea of someone reminding me, so I got mad. And that gave me a good excuse to get out of there. I pulled my wife on home and said, don't ever take me to that place again. The next day, she was all over me. After about three hours of argument, I finally said, okay, I'll go back, but under one condition. When that fella says every head bowed and every eye closed, we're getting out of there. She agreed. So back we went. And again, he's quoting the scripture. So I got mad again. And I grabbed my wife and said, we're getting out of here. We started out, but at the same time, I knew what I should do. I began to reflect back to the life raft and the prayers around the clock for 47 days, the around-the-clock prayer in the dungeon for 43 days, around-the-clock prayer in prison camp for two and a half years, and making thousands of promises, then returning home and turning my back on those promises. Why? Because there was no longer the constant and incessant bobbing up and down in the Pacific? There was no longer the hunger and thirst and the loneliness. Life had changed. Life took on a new picture. So I was quick to forget the promises I made God. But I began to think about it as I started out of that tent. And he, and he had also said, quote, cast all your cares on me for I care for you. And I said, well, if I can get that kind of help, there might be a chance for me. So I went forward to the prayer room. And first of all, I asked God to forgive me for not having kept not even one of the thousands of promises I had made him on that life raft. I then acknowledged to God that I was a sinner and then invited Christ into my life. And then the most remarkable thing that ever happened took place. True to his promise, he came into my heart and into my life. I might even say it was the most realistic thing that ever happened to me because of this change. Not because there was any kind of emotional experience. I did not have that. God simply made a statement. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I took him at his word, and I believed. And for the next several decades, Louie went on, along with Billy Graham, to tell his story. Countless, thousands of people have come to Christ. His marriage was saved. He found purpose and meaning. He left alcohol behind, the addictions that had been haunting him post-traumatic stress disorder, all of it. God found relief in Jesus, or Louis found relief in Jesus Christ. Church, we don't, we don't think like that anymore. We know a lot of hard cases, a lot of hard-headed people. We know a lot of people with hard hearts and people who hate God. And we live in a world full of people who hate God, do we not? And yet Jesus continues to ask, seek, and knock. That's what this story is here. As Jesus begins to call his disciples onto himself, he's calling men and women to surrender their lives, to give of themselves to follow him. So here's what I want to give you this morning. Based upon Christ's calling of his first disciples, I see here four key markers of what a disciple of Christ looks like. And they may not be what you expect. The first marker is this. The disciple of Jesus will prioritize him from the very beginning. The moment a person surrenders their life, the moment a person 
begins to follow Christ, he becomes their everything. He becomes the only thing. He becomes the most important thing in their life. No longer is their marriage the most important thing. No longer are their children the most important thing. No longer is their career. No longer are the indulgences of life the most important thing. No longer is their favorite NFL team the most important thing. No longer are their hobbies the most important thing. The most important thing is Jesus Christ, and he becomes prioritized above everything else. We see it here. Sign one that these guys were ready to prioritize Christ is who they left. You may not have caught that. But it said that when John the Baptist had two disciples standing there, and as soon as John the Baptist said, look, the Lamb of God, what did it say that those two men did? They left John, and they began to follow Jesus. There comes a time when God calls us to himself, and we leave stuff behind in order to follow him stuff that may have been very important in our life. But Christ always takes the priority. They left John the Baptist behind in order to follow Christ. And Jesus turned to them, as he always does to anybody, even today, who's earnestly seeking him. And he asked a not-so-simple question. It seemed simple, but it wasn't very simple. He turned to them and he said, what are you after, guys? You left him. What are you seeking? That's a loaded question. People come after Jesus for a lot of different reasons. What is it that you're after? And the question remains the same from our Lord for all of us and for everyone today who's searching. He's still saying today, even in this room, even to the hearts of people, all across our country that seems so degraded and lost, and Jesus is still calling out to people who are turning to him, and his question, his first question is always the same. What are you after? The Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, he lovingly turns to them and he asks this question. Sign two that these guys were prioritizing him is the word that they used. They recognized him immediately. They said, Rabbi, teacher. This is no small statement. This isn't a flippant title. This was them recognizing his position in their lives now. By giving him that title, they had placed him as the authority figure in their life. Every bit of truth that we're going to hang our hat on now is coming from you, Rabbi, teacher, master. Tell us, teach us. See, when you come to Christ, and Christ says, what are you seeking? One of the first things we should come to him with is this spirit of surrender where we say, you are now my teacher. Everything that is true in my life, I have to learn from you. Even if it contradicts everything that I've been taught before, even if it contradicts everything the world is screaming at me right now, I turn to Christ and I say, Rabbi, teacher, master. Show me. His teaching would now be the most important thing to them forever. Sign three, they were prioritizing him, was the question they asked him. Seems like a strange question, doesn't it? Jesus says to them, what are you after? And they respond, Rabbi, 
Where are you staying? I don't think they were simply being hospitable. There's a lot in this question that they asked back to him. This wasn't a simple by-the-road conversation. This wasn't like casual conversation like, hey, welcome to town. You know, hey, did you find a good hotel? We're hanging out. There's more to it than this. What they're really asking him is, can we follow you because we want to sit at your feet? Where are you staying tonight? Because we want as much time as possible to hear from you. Wherever you're putting your head, wherever you're dining, that's where we want to be. So as a God calls people to himself, and they say, I'm, I'm ready to give up what I had. I'm ready to give up what I was living for. I'm ready to call you teacher and master, and I'm ready to put in whatever time is necessary in order to learn from you. Learning from you is now the most important thing. When they say, where are you staying? They're saying, wherever you are, that's where we want to be because learning from you is the most important thing in our life right now. This is the mark of a disciple. That's what I'm saying. So when I was saved, God began to birth in me a hunger for his word that just would not go away. It just kept growing and growing and snowballing. I mean, there were seasons of life where you go through difficulties and sometimes you don't get to the word like you want to or sometimes you're just... Uh, cold cocked by life and and maybe you you're knocked down and you have to get back up but the the idea is that you understand God's word God's truth Jesus Christ himself to be the most important thing and you can never seem to get enough of it that's the mark of a disciple as the nation of Israel was wandering from God God was anxiously desiring them to turn back to him. To the point where we get this very famous passage of scripture in Jeremiah 29, 11. Jeremiah, speaking the Lord's words here, says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and hope. Then you will call upon me, and come and pray to me, and I will hear you, and you will seek me, find me, when you seek me with all your heart. This is an expression to all of us today that holds true just as it did to those young men who chose to follow Christ that day by the riverside. If you earnestly desire to turn to Christ and seek him, God will speak purpose and truth and hope and future into your life. That's good news. I don't have to count on what CNN or Fox or the local news has to say about what's going on in the world because my world is secure knowing that Jesus Christ has given me hope and a good future. You can have this world. Jesus' disciples were learning this firsthand. Now the second marker we see here of a disciple of Christ is this. And this is good news, remember, and I want to encourage you with this, but it also will hit you between the eyes. The disciple of Jesus brings others to meet him. The disciple of Jesus brings other people to meet him. 
I think Andrew is one of the most underrated disciples in the whole entire New Testament. His Bible business card might read Andrew, Simon's brother. And that's unfortunate. Because to me, his business card should read Andrew, world changer. Why? He's the catalyst for the eternal kingdom. God used him as a catalyst to bring the leader of the church to Christ. His brother, Simon Peter. He's so special to me that I gave the name Andrew to my son. Because when we prayed about our, when we were praying for our boy before he was born, one of our ardent prayers was that he would be a young man who would bring other people to Christ. So we gave him the middle name Andrew. See, Andrew just had this strong desire to see others come to Christ, starting with his own family. As it should be with us, as it was with me. It's this strong desire to see children come to Christ. To see broken families healed because they came to Christ. To see people who are steeped in horrible theology and terrible Christianity come to Christ and find out the freedom and the grace and the reality of who Jesus really is. Every day that I get up, there's not a day that goes by that I don't at least ask the question, God, what can I do today in order to bring somebody to Jesus Christ? And the more you pray that, and the more you lay that before the Lord, you'll be shocked how many opportunities God gives you to speak truth and to draw people to Christ. It's clear when we read the book of Acts and see the impact of Peter, the difference that Andrew had made. Look. Acts chapter 2, 38 to 41. This is Peter preaching. We know this story. We just studied it from the pulpit a few months ago. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Where is Andrew mentioned in any of that? He's not. Andrew doesn't really show up much in the book of Acts at all. And yet without Andrew, there's no sermon at Pentecost. And without Peter's preaching at Pentecost, there's not 3,000 that are saved that day and baptized. There's no mass movement of the church going forward. It's like Peter was the one who applied the car battery in order to give the jolt, but it was Andrew who was the one that went out and bought the battery or the jumper cable. Andrew is a difference maker. He's a world changer. We think simply because we play on the sidelines that we're not making a difference like a, a Peter or a John who wrote this gospel. But let me just give you another Acts story, just kind of illustrate how important this idea of bringing others to Christ is. A bit later in the book of Acts, we see a, a similar example to what Andrew did. A powerful figure in the church missionary movement was a young man named Apollos. He's mentioned all throughout the biblical accounts of the new church, and he seems to have had a very special ministry 
to the church in Corinth. Paul puts Apollos' teaching and work on the same level as himself. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says this about Apollos. He says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another I, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Paul's not trying to steal Apollos' thunder. It's not about who's who in the New Testament. But clearly, Paul recognizes the difference that Apollos is making in people's lives. And later, with he and Peter, we see this in 1 Corinthians 3. Same chapter, a little bit later. Paul says, so don't boast about following a particular human leader, for everything belongs to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life or death or the present and the future. Everything belongs to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. This guy, Apollos, is ranking in the status of Peter and Paul. Must have been a pretty good ministry. But get this, did you know? Before there was a powerful ministry of Apollos, there was a humble couple named Priscilla and Aquila. There would be no Apollos ministry if it wasn't for Priscilla and Aquila. And we hear this story in Acts chapter 18. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke, spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So what's going on here? You have a guy who clearly is gifted. You have a guy who is very eloquent. You have a guy who has a general understanding of who Jesus is, a general understanding of the scriptures, and it says he was even teaching accurately, but there is something missing. It says that he was unfamiliar with anything beyond the baptism of John. Well, what was the baptism of John? The baptism of John was repentance. So what he was missing was the grace aspect. He was, he was communicating truth, but he was missing out on the forgiveness of sin. Priscilla and Aquila take him aside. They begin to teach him out more accurately. And from there, Apollos' ministry just takes off like wildfire. Why? Because there was a, a humble couple of simple station in life who chose to pull him aside and invest in him and show him more accurately the way of Jesus Christ. Here, this has got to be one of the most important points y'all take away today. We often lay effort, our, we often lay off our effort for Christ because we think we can never be a Peter. But for every Peter, there is an Andrew. For every church planter or missionary that's sent out, there's a VBS leader, there's a youth leader, there's a parent that taught them the Lord. There's a Sunday school teacher, there's a personal mentor that has built into their life the truth of Christ. Somewhere there is a missionary serving in a Muslim nation, surrendering their life literally for the gospel of Christ 
and somewhere else there is a Sunday school teacher who patted that little boy on the head, handed him goldfish crackers by the mouthful, handed him his first Bible, taught him where to find the Gospel of John, told him how to be forgiven from his sins, told him how special Jesus was and how much he loved him. Tell me, is there a Muslim missionary? Is there a missionary to the Muslim nations today? There's not that faithful Sunday school teacher who does such a thing. Now consider the billions who've heard the gospel and the millions who have responded to the ministries of such famous people as Bill Bright, Campus Crusade for Christ, and Billy Graham. Yet they both have in common the same teacher mentor. You know that? It's this woman. Go ahead, Alan. She looks like a world changer, doesn't she? That woman's name is Henrietta Mears. You should read her book. It's fantastic. Henrietta Mears was a phenomenal teacher. She's the founder of Gospel Light Ministry, and she has Bill Bright and Billy Graham in common as young men that she mentored for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This woman went to her in order to be instructed in the Lord. So, think about it. No Henrietta Mears, no Billy Graham. Billy Graham, no Louis Zamperini. No salvation for Louis Zamperini, no marriage saved. No salvation for Louis Zamperini, no testimony resulting in thousands that come to Christ. Billy Graham can save over the past few decades. So it can be with you, church. You may never see yourself as a Peter. But are you a Henrietta Mears? Are you an Andrew? You need to be Andrew. Because the disciple of Jesus always brings other people to him. Third mark of a disciple this morning is this. This is comforting as well. The disciple of Jesus is recognized by him recognized by him first. In God's sovereignty, God sees you before you see him. God's working in your life before you have an opportunity to even think about responding to him. So we see again another another story of in this encounter here. Philip begins to tell this guy Nathaniel about Jesus. Do you notice how this works? It's like wildfire, you know? So and so told so and so and they told so and so and they told so and so. And people are lining up now to follow Christ. The name Nathaniel really only shows up in John's Gospel, by the way, just kind of a little Bible trivia note for you. Most scholars think that Nathaniel is a nickname or another name for the disciple Bartholomew. But Jesus knew him. Jesus knew him before Nathaniel knew him. Jesus knew his character. Did you notice that? Jesus knew his doubts. Jesus knew his beliefs. Jesus knew his shortcomings. Jesus knew everything about him. And as is for you. You may be walking in Christ now. Maybe you're telling people about Christ. But before you were even thinking about Jesus, Jesus knew you. He knew where your heart struggles would be. He knew where you would be today. He knew where your struggles would be today. He knew where your scars would occur. 
And he was prepared to carry all that for you. Here's a guy, Nathaniel. Just, I see so much of myself in Nathaniel. Spiritual guy, looking, trying really hard to get it right, you know, had been trained in the rights and the wrongs of religion, but he's super skeptical, really cynical. Sees a spiritual goat around every corner, doubtful. That's Nathaniel. Can anything good actually come out of Nazareth? You know, you're telling me that there's a missionary that's going to come out of that church? No way. And that was Nathaniel. And maybe, I don't know why, maybe all the, the voices of the world at that time that he had been listening to, you, I don't know, maybe you're different. But for me, like when I woke up this morning, it is very easy to be overwhelmed by skepticism. You become cynical, doubtful, and sometimes just downright mean-spirited, don't you? And you stop looking for God's working hand because you're caught up in, as Debbie Downer all the time. You're Johnny Raincloud everywhere you go, and that was Nathaniel. Then along comes Jesus. And what does Jesus tell Nathaniel? He speaks to him the unknowable, really. Speaks to him the unknowable. He says, I know you. I've seen you. When you were under that fig tree and you thought you were all by yourself, you thought you had your thoughts all to yourself. You thought your doubts were just your own. You thought all the demons that are haunting you, you thought that nobody else knew about those things. You thought all the things that bothered you about religion and about the world. You thought all the stuff that you hated about Nazareth was just in your heart and your mind? Hey, Nathaniel, I saw you when you were under that fig tree struggling with those things. I saw you when you were thinking that you weren't worth anything. I saw you when you were thinking that you were worth too much. I saw you when you were doubting me. of us would want Christ know us that intimately before we knew him. All the junk, all the stuff, all the hatred, doubt, skepticism. And yet, somehow, the Lord saw us when we were at that point. And he still chose me. He chose me. Sometimes I marvel at the stuff I do every day. And I'm haunted by even the sins that I commit from day to day. And I have to stop and think to myself, surely your grace is not this big. And yet God reminds me that it is. Because when I was a wretched person, God still looked at me under the fig tree and he said, follow me. God knows you, for you know him. Don't let it scare you. Take comfort in that. And then respond to it. Because if God knew you when you were in that state, why would he possibly throw you out to the trash now? Why would he sit you on the shelf and say, yeah, you're no good now. I mean, I saw you when you were really bad. And yes, I died for you. 
And yes, I poured my grace all over you like a, a relentless ocean wave. Waves of mercy that never stop. And yes, I took the righteousness of God Himself and I placed it upon you. But now I don't want anything to do with you? That's not God. That's not the message of Jesus Christ. Jesus said it best in Luke 12 too. He said, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. We bring us so much stress and friction in our life by thinking that there's things that we can keep from God. And he doesn't operate that way. And the psalmist said in Psalm 69.5, oh, the psalmist is broken here about their life. And he says, oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I've done are not hidden from you. Listen, and yet God chose us. That's good news. Jesus didn't just know. Jesus saw Nathaniel under that fig tree. Maybe he was praying. And we get, it seems odd at first that, well, we'll get to it in a second, but what Jesus responded after that to Nathaniel is very telling about what he knew Nathaniel was thinking under that fig tree. So here we go. The last mark of a disciple this morning is this. This is good news. The disciple of Jesus has the extraordinary in store for their future. The disciple of Jesus Christ has the extraordinary in store for their future. You may think, be thinking to yourself, oh, you don't know what's on my calendar this week. I got some nasty stuff coming up. I got some stuff I don't want to do. Now you're thinking too small, church. If your view of your future has anything to do with your calendar, you're thinking too small for God. God says, I've come to give you hope and a good future. He is thinking kingdom. He's thinking eternity. He's thinking heaven. And we're so focused on how I feel today. How are my emotions going to carry me through this week? How am I going to get by in this particular sticky situation? How am I going to speak to this person about this one particular thing? And Jesus is like, Nathaniel, you believe because I said I saw you under a fig tree? No, 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 no. You're going to see the Son of Man descending and ascending to and from heaven. Well, let's read it exactly what Christ says. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? you will see greater things than these. And he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And your first thought may be, why in the world is Jesus mentioning this to him? What a bizarre reference. Okay, so first of all, Jesus is speaking about heaven. He's speaking about eternity here. Nathaniel was thinking, man, what a miraculous thing. The dude said he saw me when I was under that fig tree. Like, Nathaniel, you know, maybe thinking like parlor trick size God. And Jesus is saying, no. You're going to get the full view of heaven. And you're going to see everything about it. And his reference here, and this is a little extra homework for you this week if you choose. His reference here is direct reference to Jacob's encounter with the Lord in prayer. When Jacob was given a vision from God of a ladder ascending to heaven and the angels up and down the ladder, he's given an eternal 
vision, Jacob is. But instead of ascending and descending on a ladder, Nathaniel gets to see the angels of heaven ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Nathaniel, the great thing you're going to see is eternity. Because to inherit heaven means ascending on the very back of the Son of Man. It is Christ who is the ladder to heaven, is he not? It is Jesus Christ who bridges the gap to eternity. You think it's cool because I saw you under a fig tree. Nobody. I'm going to escort you right into the very presence of heaven. As a disciple of me, you will see eternity. So you can take your news every morning when you wake up and you can stick it in the eye of somebody else and say, I have better news than this. As a disciple of Christ, I have been called to eternity. God has great things in store for me that are a lot bigger than whatever's going on around Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and whatever the liberals have to say that wants to depress me, I'm done with it. I belong to the king, I follow him, and as a disciple of him, I have hope in a good future. The reason we are counted among the extraordinary is because of Jesus Christ. Louis Zamperini experienced this. He thought his life would be identified by surviving on the ocean all those days and surviving a Japanese prison camp and then getting by forever through a bottle of alcohol and abusing his wife. He found out that those things pale in comparison. They are nothing compared to knowing Jesus Christ and following him. Do you belong to him? See, um, I believe it was Kyle Alderman wrote this great book a few years ago called Not a Fan. He said, we got a lot of people in American church today that are, they're fans of Jesus. They're not followers of Christ. We need more people in our church that have been called to follow and obediently pursue him and then experience the real joy that comes along with it. We want felt need Christianity. Jesus, push this button and fix this thing in my life. Jesus says, you're thinking too small. I'm bigger than that. You're a disciple of me. I've given you more than that. I've given you heaven and eternity and a kingdom and a place to rule someday. Follow me and think bigger as a disciple of Christ. Let's go to the Lord.